0: Our red line to Iran is do not develop a nuclear weapon. That's a red line for us. The responsible thing to do right now is to keep putting diplomatic and economic pressure on them to force them to do the right thing.
1: Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Caitlin Kenny,
0: And I'm Robert Smith. Today is Tuesday, January 17th, and that was Defense Secretary Leon Panetta, you heard at the top, talking about imposing economic sanctions against Iran.
1: Economic sanctions are a hot topic in the last few weeks, and you can see why they're such an appealing idea for the U.S. government. Rather than try to go to war to stop Iran's nuclear program, to risk American lives, the U.S. can block money from going into and out of the country.
0: And that makes life miserable for Iran. And in theory, Iran's government will give up their nuclear ambitions. But our question today, do sanctions work? Have sanctions ever really worked? We have a deep read today with an economist who has the answer. But first, the Planet Money Indicator with our own Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money Indicator, 3.1.
2: The interest rate on French 10-year government bonds, it's 3.1%. And I picked this for today's indicator because, as you may have heard if you read the papers, Standard & Poor's downgraded France's credit rating on Friday from AAA, that's the top rating, one notch down to AA+. Uh, This downgrade, it made big headlines over the weekend. You know, it plays into this whole collapse of Europe narrative. Mm -hmm. But what really matters here, it's not what the headlines say. It's not what Standard & Poor says. It's what the people who lend money to the French government actually do. Well, I'll bite. What do the people who lend money to the French government, what do they think? You know, they don't care. They are completely (laughs) ignoring this downgrade. This indicator a 3.1%.
0: It's almost exactly the same as the interest rate was for France last week before the downgrade. This sounds like exactly what happened when S&P downgraded the U.S. government debt last summer. It is. It it is really the same story. You know,
2: big country loses its AAA status. Headlines play up some big decline and fall narrative. And the people who really matter, the ones who actually are lending money to governments, they ignore the whole thing. Go on as if it didn't happen. Because they knew it was going to happen anyway. Not only did they know the downgrade was going to happen, but the really key thing with something like the U.S. or France, it's not like S&P has any special insight or any secret documents they're looking at. They know basically the same story as everybody else knows. So it's just one more opinion. Thanks, Jacob.
0: Thanks, guys. Okay, on to the effectiveness of sanctions. It seems like there's always one country or another that the United States or the United Nations is imposing sanctions on. And the reasons change, the regimes change, but the idea behind it is always the same. It's basically economic coercion. The U.S. can freeze another country's bank accounts. It can stop trading with that country. It can make other countries stop trading with that country. Or it can deny foreign banks the ability to access international finance. In other words, the United States can turn off the money tap and make sure that other countries suffer.
1: And that's exactly what the U.S. is trying to do right now with Iran. President Obama just signed a law that punishes banks for doing business with Iran's central bank. The idea is that this will make it difficult for the country to sell its oil because people who buy oil from Iran, those payments are processed through the central bank. And the idea is if that money doesn't flow in for the oil, that's going to hurt the government.
0: Yeah. Today we're going to ask, do these kind of economic sanctions, do they ever work? Because we hear a lot about the sanctions when they don't work. We've had sanctions on Cuba for decades. We had sanctions on Iraq for 13 years, but you may remember that it took a war to depose Saddam Hussein. Now, Adam Davidson and I talked to an economist who has studied this question. But first, I wanted you to hear a little bit about what life is like for the people under sanctions. Now, Adam Davidson had a translator when he was a reporter in Iraq. Uh, His name is Amjad. And we called him up and Amjad described what life was like after Iraq invaded Kuwait in the early 90s and the United Nations imposed sanctions?
3: You know, people, once, once they heard in the news that the UN is going to impose sanctions on Iraq for invading Kuwait, the p- people rushed into the stores stocking up piles of foods, you know, sacks of, um, you know, rice, sugar, tea, um, you know, whatever, like milk, uh, powdered milk, um, you know, all, all that stuff that they need on a daily basis. So and that causes, like we used to buy, uh, you know, like tw- uh, fifty kilos of rice for ten dinners, and in one month that that ten dinners goes up to almost fifty dinners.
0: Fifty dinners. So that's five 50. times the amount. Yeah.
3: Yeah, five times the amount in in almost like in in, in probably a month or so. People had to sell their furniture doing more than one work a day uh, just to uh, manage to get enough money to buy just food i mean forget about the clothes forget about the other things so they they are just you know trying to have enough money to to uh, to get the food
1: Now, during this time when Amjad and everyone he knows is selling all the possessions in their home, Saddam Hussein, who the sanctions are supposed to punish, he was going around building new palaces. In fact, Amjad told us that he worked on one of the construction sites for the new palace at this time. And he talked about how the walls inside were covered in marble and that you had to use this really expensive type of glue to keep up the marble. So even though no one was supposed to be dealing with them, Saddam still had access to build these grand palaces full of marble. And this is the problem
0: with sanctions that we always hear about. If a dictator who has plenty of money and plenty of power and plenty of resources doesn't care about the sanctions, if that dictator can get around the sanctions, if it hurts the citizens of a country and not the government, then why impose sanctions at all? So Adam Davidson and I called up an economist, Gary Huffbauer. He works at the Peterson Institute and he, in fact, wrote a book called Economic Sanctions Reconsidered. Hoffbauer is also an expert because he used to work for the U.S. Treasury way back in the Carter administration. In fact, he worked there during the hostage crisis with Iran and was part of the original discussion about imposing sanctions on Iran back then.
4: I was there at the very first inception of the sanctions episode.
0: So can you tell us about what, what
5: were the discussions around sanctions? What, what, how, how did it go from, wow, they've kidnapped a bunch of Americans and become sort of a rogue state to – sanctions. Was that just the obvious?
4: Well, I I guess it seemed to be the obvious. Remember at that time that Iran had a lot of money uh, in Western banks, U.S. banks, but also British banks, some French banks, and so forth. So it was relatively easy for the U.S. to grab the money. By that, I mean freeze it. And here you had this new revolutionary group coming into power in Tehran, and, of course, they wanted all the money they could get. So they had a reason to uh, to talk. They didn't talk very much with the Carter administration, but they did later talk uh, with the Reagan administration. And we worked out this whole – I should say the government worked out this whole Hague process. And um, you could say that was a relatively successful episode in this long-running – uh, set of problems with Iran.
5: so wait did was I mean that sounds almost I mean blackmail might not be the right way to put it, but we've got your money, you've got our people. you don't get your money until we get our people. like it, it almost sounds like a mob kind of
4: oh, oh oh, absolutely. I mean it was I mean you're, you're holding our people and we're going to hold your money and um, we're going to work out this fairly complicated legal process.
0: Does it always come down to two sets of people in a room? One set going, "No, we have a military; we should go in and take them out." Another set saying, "No, no, 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 no. We can we can do this through sanctions. We can do this through money." Is that the fundamental debate that happens? To something like this?
4: Well, you're you're close, uh, but not spot on. I mean, if you go way back in history to Woodrow Wilson, who was a big champion of, of sanctions, his view and a view that prevailed in that era was that sanctions were an alternative to war. You could sanction a country and it would shape up. And uh, that idea was proven wrong when the League of Nations sanctioned Italy over its invasion of what is now known as Ethiopia, then known as Abyssinia.
0: Just quickly describe that. What, what were the sanctions there and, and why did it fail?
4: Well, the League of Nations, which the United States did not belong to, remember, because uh, the Senate didn't approve our joining the League of Nations, decided that Italian uh, adventurism in Africa, in Ethiopia, was uh, you know pretty awful and put on sanctions. This was Britain and France principally, but the Netherlands as well and a few other countries. And the U.S. kind of adhered to this in a loose sort of way. Uh, to get Mussolini to withdraw from Ethiopia, and Mussolini gave a stirring speech. I can't recall the exact words, but he says, basically, to sanctions of an economic character, we will reply with our our military strength and our uh, national uh, fortitude. And he ignored the sanctions, and Italy did not withdraw from Ethiopia. Well. That was a a sad episode in the history of of economic sanctions. And not a ringing endorsement of the idea
0: that sanctions are an alternative towards.
4: Absolutely.
0: Now, Huffbauer and his co-authors at the Peterson Institute looked at more than 200 episodes of economic sanctions, starting with World War I. And he found that a lot of the success of sanctions depended on what exactly you're trying to accomplish – It's one thing to get a country to release some political prisoners or perhaps improve human rights in general. But a lot of these sanctions have much bigger goals, like overturning the government, getting rid of a dictator. Adam and I asked Huffbauer exactly how successful have those kind of sanctions been. In about 30
4: percent of the cases up to the year 2000, regime change worked. In other words, the leaders left or were overthrown. Now, I've just looked at uh, a tabulation, which is not in this book, that we've done of cases since the year 2000, say the last decade or so. And actually, that that figure holds up pretty well. We're still getting a pretty good percentage of cases.
0: This actually surprises me because... When I think of the sort of most obvious sanctions out there against Cuba or uh, against Iraq, leading yes. up to the war there, Libya until yeah. we decided to lift them, I think of all these like massive failures. What, w- which ones are you referring to? Like, what's the most famous example of a success? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm
4: glad I'm glad you put it that way because the success cases are often the obscure ones, which um, you know probably very few people have. I've heard of, and, and I want to well, – They went on me. Uh, Guinea in, in Africa. There was a captain, Captain Kamara, uh, who ran a military junta, back in 2005. And the European Union said, you know, this is too much. Uh, we want to return back to a democratic society in this country. And the European Union gives a fair amount of money given the size of the country to, you know, to, to sustain it in terms of uh, various kinds of development projects. And indeed, in 2010, Captain Kamara went into exile. Um, this was after there was an assassination attempt on him, so there are other problems he had. But uh, he did leave. He went into exile. And uh, there was an election of sorts, and you know, Democratic government restored. Now, who has heard of Guinea? I, I do think only about 2% of Americans could place Guinea on the African map uh, and this that is the many.
0: big example of success of sanctions,
4: and that is a, that's very characteristic of success. Small. i don't com- almost
5: guarantee two percent is generous. Okay. And, and then <laughs> if you throw in which one's Guinea and which one's Guinea Bissau. Oh but- well,
4: that's yeah, we're up to the uh, people who win quiz shows, but but that's very characteristic. Uh, Panama, you could mention that Aristide. Remember Aristide in Haiti? Uh, we actually kind of put him into power under the Clinton administration, but he turned out to be a little bit on the corrupt side and authoritarian and so forth. And under the Bush administration, uh, together with the Europeans, we dislodged him from power. Wait, can I stop you on Haiti? Because I
5: I have to say, it's upsetting to hear that talked about as a success. I mean, I guess it's a success in the sense that um, there was leadership we didn't want and we put sanctions and and then that leadership left. Um, but I spent a lot of the last two years in Haiti covering the efforts at economic development. And there was sort of this miraculous thing happening in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, which, um, which was the very early stages of industrialization, there were the early stages of a middle class emerging. Uh, you know, Haiti famously... Has a very tiny elite which captures much of the wealth of the of the nation, and then a massive population that that shares very very little. And you're right, right, quite poor. Every I'd, I'd say every major industrialist, every major business person I talked to, everybody who had, I just heard the same thing going on and on. In in eighty nine, and in ninety, and in 92, After we got rid of the dictator, Baby Doc, I was just beginning to build a factory that was selling furniture to the U.S. or clothing to the U.S. or whatever it might be. And then the sanctions came and it killed everything. You know, certainly the the baby Doc and his father, Papa Doc, but take a lot of the blame. But I think the sanctions really, really set the country back dramatically. And importantly, they eliminated the growth of this new middle class that could have become a real – Counterweight to you know the the dictatorial uh, generals who who were running the country and and so I just it makes me sad to think that could be on a success list of sanctions. It seems like a clear example of maybe a one policy goal was achieved, but but at unbearable, horrible cost.
4: I, I really do take your point. I mean, when we grade them, we look at the. Goal, which was sought as far as we can make out by the leaders of the country, uh, imposing the sanctions, the center country, its leaders. Meaning, but what did President story- Clinton
5: want to achieve, and did it correct? A-
4: absolutely, and you could say the his National Security Council. I mean, those those are the folks. But you're absolutely right, and if you go to these regime change cases, I'm sure you can find many of them where after the regime was changed, things did not get better for the people. And um, so – and this is something I think the U.S. government hopefully considers more carefully now than it might have uh, back in in that era. Maybe not and it's very hard to predict.
0: Even though you say that 30 percent of sanctions were successful, it worries me what these 30 percent are. These are are small – Poor countries that the you know United States, the largest economy in the world bears down upon and it seems like that once you get beyond a certain size it becomes too difficult to do these sanctions. Is that right?
4: Oh absolutely and and we go into that size uh, sort of thing, but I think the the big exceptions are countries which are not necessarily giant countries, but where there's an extremely strong authoritarian leader, uh, very good secret police from the standpoint of maintaining the leadership, which has some command of some resources, maybe it's just the people, and is able to withstand. And those cases are the headline cases that everyone knows. So let me tick off a few of them. Cuba, I mentioned. You've mentioned North Korea. Uh, You could also... Uh, go into Iraq, where sanctions were extremely heavy. And Saddam was able to uh, withstand the sanctions for, a you know, he withstood them until military forces came. So that was not sanctions that dislodged him.
0: I I feel like we need to step back for a moment because so far we've you you've proven that they're usually ineffective sanctions are usually ineffective we've talked about how it can hurt the middle class how it can strengthen the forces of of darkness even if even if there is regime change it could bring in someone who is is just as bad make the pitch for me that that sanctions should ever be used
4: well i i guess i would say that if you've got a a 30% success rate and that's our statistic
0: for tiny poor countries uh, yeah
5: and yeah, only well, and very narrowly <laughs> defining success. <laughs> yeah,
4: well, defining so yeah, keep... yeah, right. not including all the things you would include. Uh, that's pretty good as diplomacy goes. I mean, you know, diplomacy is never hundred percent batting average. So, uh, I, I would put the success a little bit. You know, I would characterize it in a more optimistic way than you characterize it. And there are some cases where I think everyone would agree. That the um, you know what was achieved was a was a good thing. The one really big case where sanctions made a contribution I don't want to say that was decisive, but it was certainly important, and that was South Africa. It was a big country. Apartheid ended. Sanctions played a role in that. The internal politics in South Africa played a larger role. So I've tried to name a few cases where sanctions. Would I think in a broader uh, characterization of success would be characterized as
0: successful. Huffbauer, in his research, has a whole list of conditions that help make sanctions work. One, it clearly helps if the country you're targeting is small, so you can push them around. Two, it helps if the country has a lot of trade relationships you can disrupt. This makes sanctions more painful. Number three, it helps if your goals are reasonable and limited, as we talked about before. It's maybe easier to get a few political prisoners freed than it is to get rid of a whole dictatorship. Number four, sanctions, he says, need to be imposed quickly. And finally, five, especially in the case of Iran, you want the sanctions to hurt them more than the sanctions hurt the United States. Using these criteria, Hofbauer says that shutting down Iran's nuclear program is going to be tough. But it is a difficult case. Now, what's the
4: argument for going ahead? Well, the U.S. has never done anything like what it's doing with Iran today. We've tried to get other countries not to deal with Iranian banks. You could call them quasi-private banks, and now we're going after the central bank. And this is big stuff, and it is, I think, having some effect in Iran in terms of of uh, the Iranians uh, having to think whether they can weather this through. And I want to just mention one aspect which I think is is pretty clever on the part of the U.S. government. We're not blockading Iranian oil exports, right? What we are doing is trying to discourage through the financial mechanism countries which are of the same mind as the United States. Let's take Japan as an example and Korea – Which are purchasers of Iranian oil from paying for it, and so Iran is going to ship less oil to them.
0: Does that stand a better chance of success?
4: Better. Uh, This is novel, and I think it does put the screws on the leadership in Tehran. Whether it causes them to change course, um, that's up in the air. But the other part of the story is this: if eventually, the US or Israel does resort to a military strike. There will obviously be a lot of criticism. The backlash will be enormous. But the criticism would be that much greater if we had not gone to the maximum extent on economic sanctions. And that's clearly what the Obama administration is doing. It's going to the maximum extent, and by that I mean we are pushing as hard as our allies and countries we converse with, that would be China, uh, will allow us to go. And so that comes back to the prelude to war.
0: As always, we'd like to hear what you think. Email us at planetmoney at npr.org, or you can reach us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening.